This audio presentation is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good afternoon, and welcome to this Rand Call with the Experts. I'm Jeff Hyde, Director of Media Relations at Rand. These calls are one of the many benefits of supporting Rand. Today, we are speaking again about the spread of COVID 19. We have three physicians on the call. I know that could make it maybe a little tempting to check out your personal symptoms with them, but I would recommend we stick to policy questions.、Uh, here in the Washington office, I'm joined by Jennifer Bowie. Hi, Jennifer.、Uh, Jennifer is an epidemiologist, a senior policy researcher, and our Tang Chair in China Policy Studies. Good to、uh, be here. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I'm joined from our Boston office by Courtney Gedingle. She's the director of our Boston office and a senior physician researcher who has actually been on service these past two weeks at Boston Children's Hospital. Thanks, Courtney, for finding the time to join us. Thanks for having me.、Uh, also in Boston, but、uh, not at the hospital, as far as I'm aware, is Laura Faraday. Uh, a physician policy researcher and an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Boston University School of Medicine. Hi, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. And we have a,、uh, joining us remotely in Washington, but not in the office with us, is、uh, Jennifer Kavanaugh, a senior political scientist and the Joel and Joanne Mogi Truth Decay Fellow. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, I'm really glad to be here today. And finally, joining us from our Santa Monica headquarters is Brandon Baker, VP for Development at RAND.、Uh, his office helped organize this call. Brandon will have a few words to say at the conclusion of the call.、Uh, thanks for joining us, Brandon. Thanks, Jeff. Today's call is scheduled for an hour. It's being recorded and will be made into a podcast on RAND.org. Uh, we've had a tremendous response to this call with hundreds calling in, so we won't be able to get to everyone's questions, but we'll answer as many as we can. Okay, let's begin.、Uh, just in the past few days, America seems to be shifting to shutdown mode. We've got schools closing, bars and restaurants are shutting, planes and trains are cutting back.、Uh, just this afternoon, the White House urged everyone to avoid gatherings of more than 10 people. Uh, how about we start with you, Courtney? What do you, what do you make of all this? Are we seeing the right approaches here in the U.S.? Is it happening in good time or a little too late? Well, I think we're just seeing a response really changing from one where we're trying to contain、uh, the virus. So early on, there were travel bans, screening of travelers, really focusing on that travel connection in an effort to try and prevent it really from spreading here and just taking hold of the United States. And I think it's become increasingly clear,、um, not only from what we're seeing in the United States, but also from what we're seeing in Italy, in Europe, and sort of the pace and tempo of the outbreaks there.、Um, I think really everyone has sort of, you know, over the last seven to 10 days, there's been a real shift in tone and an urgency around this outbreak. And so we're seeing everyone really move into sort of a more of a mitigation mode. So I think that there is an acceptance that there is at least some measure of spread. In communities across the United States. I think、uh, last I checked, all but one state has at least some cases,、uh, with West Virginia being the holdout, but that might not be true anymore. And really, some, obviously, some places have been much more severely affected Seattle,、uh, New York City, Cal- Northern California. And so, you know, with, with that,、um, I think that governments at the state level, at the federal level, at, at the local community level are really. Um, shifting into this mitigation mode. And what that means is a phrase that probably everyone has heard now countless times, which is to flatten the curve. 
So the idea is that, you know, we know that there will be probably a fair number of cases here. And the idea is that they don't all hit at the same time and um, overwhelm the healthcare system, which I think is sort of the big concern moving forward. So you could just describe that curve. Right. So if you think of sort of a bell curve that goes up, if you have it go up very steeply and we only have a certain capacity that's you know, more or less fixed of ICU beds. Healthcare systems are working on trying to move that line up of, you know, how many severe illnesses can be treated in hospitals. But that, that all those cases above the line that they hit at the same time, um, we're going to, you know, have happened what we're seeing in Italy where um, reportedly doctors are having to choose who's able to be ventilated or who's able to be treated aggressively. And we're really trying to avoid that. We're also trying to avoid healthcare workers getting infected and sick because ultimately that means we can't take good care of our patients. Um, if you flatten the curve, just imagine that same curve, but with a much less sharp bell shape, so more of a flattened bell. And the idea is that the, the sort of peak of the curve stays closer to the actual capacity of the healthcare system. So while you may not be able to prevent the number of overall cases, you actually spread the amount of time over which they occur. And that allows um, healthcare providers, hospitals, everyone to actually be able to get earlier patients better, move them out, and then take on new patients. And also, obviously, has a huge impact not only for the care of coronavirus, but also enabling us to take care of all the other diseases that are not going to go away in the meantime um, during this pandemic. And so with the measures, you know, that have been introduced over the last week, really centering around social distancing, so school closures, encouragement to telework, uh, retail store closures, restaurants shifting to um, takeout and delivery, um, and also the measures that healthcare systems are taking to try and keep their healthcare workers healthy as well. We're trying to really sort of spread out the cases so everyone is not hard hit at the same time. Are you seeing this uh, there at the hospital? Are you seeing the effect of any kind of a surge of patients? You know, I think all hospitals, I work in a children's hospital and uh, we can talk more about this, but it does seem children are fortunately less severely affected. And I obviously can't share anything that is not um, public information at this point. Um, I would say that all hospitals are working, have been working actually for quite some time now and are, have still are ramping up um, their thinking, planning around how to treat as many patients as we possibly can. And that is at really every level of the hospital. So hospitals are thinking through cross-training staff, um, how to get more ventilators, where they can be put, how we can work together in communities. Um, so could children's hospitals potentially treat young adults? That has been done before in the H1N1 pandemic, and those sorts of strategies are under consideration in hospitals across the country. Uh, we're also thinking about um, scheduling of healthcare workers, having clear backups, helping healthcare workers think through their childcare. So we have, you know, the workforce... Um, uh, you know, has a spread of age, and a lot of people have young families, and that's also a concern if their family members get sick, um, as well as preparing to get potentially emerging treatments and, and being prepared to care for these patients as best we can. So I, I think that um, we have been looking towards what's being learned in Italy, across the world, in, in China, um, really everywhere, but also because we're operating within our own healthcare system, people are looking with great interest at what, what is going on in Seattle, New York City, Santa Clara, and other spots where they are just seeing this incredible surge and are unfortunately probably just, you know, some days ahead of a lot of communities in the That's country. a good spot to segue to Jennifer Bowie here in Washington. How are you seeing the reactions and are there any lessons possibly to be taken from what we're seeing in Asia or Europe? 
Yes. So it, I think it's looking at today. It's hard to imagine just about a couple of months ago where all eyes are on China.、Uh, certainly, China was the first country to report the pneumonia clusters in December, and after an initial f-、uh, fumble of the understanding the transmission on January twentieth, the、uh, China initiate the、uh, public health emergency. But just in two days, they lock down Wuhan. We certainly see. That in Wuhan, there's a steep increase of case numbers, and the healthcare system was、uh, totally overwhelmed. But、uh, within, I would say, three weeks of complete shutdown、uh, during the Chinese New Year, that China pretty much has、uh, keep the cases uh, case number uh, stable. And nowadays, we see that there are few cases coming out of China.、Uh, in China, with just I think it's now it's a fourth month、uh, is seeing the imported cases more than the internal case. So I think that shows one thing is that social distancing does work if you go to a certain extreme,、uh, and then、uh, but also China has been hit very hard by the by the market. So where where are they on the、uh, on the on the curve that Courtney was just describing? So I think in China they certainly uh, has uh, keep the、uh, the new cases、uh, stabilized,、uh, and now they are focusing on uh, uh, especially dealing with the the large expats coming back, especially college students. So、uh, we do have about three hundred thousand Chinese students from. U.S. only, and now many of them are heading back to China. So now, and also China, because eighty percent of their cases are coming from the family clusters. They so so they they don't trust self quarantine at home. So they they are you know now they're struggling with how to, where to isolate these potential ca- new cases coming from. And what about、uh, what you're seeing in Europe? Do you think、yeah. there are lessons to be learned from there? Right, we we definitely see that East Asia,、uh, West Europe,、uh, and uh, uh, to some extent the Middle East, we we see the new clusters coming out.、Uh, especially the last few days, it's quite alarming to see that Italy, the especially the death rate, the, the cases are, are increasing so fast.、Um, but I think in general, we'll see、uh, that with various degrees of、uh, social distancing policy,、uh, that there are countries will have a a time to basically. Catch up the,、uh, to count the number of cases, but then after this catch up phase, it will go into the more stable case increase. With- really, just showing the transmission, and then hopefully with good. Uh, Uh, treatment, uh, then we'll see that the case numbers start to come down a little bit,、uh, and eventually, you know,、uh, hopefully, we, it will be controllable.、Uh, so right now, without a vaccine and without a proven treatment, we really have to rely on social distancing. But how to use that? We see different models in different countries: Singapore,、uh, Taiwan,、um, Korea. They're all using very different,、uh, a little bit different.、Uh, Strategy, and、uh, we we see some successful cases.、There. Laura, maybe you could take us through some of the social distancing measures that are being used in the U.S. and give us a sense of of how they're working or how you think they may work. Sure. So the term social distancing is becoming increasingly common,、um, and. Um, it really refers to trying to keep physical distance、uh, between people.、Um, so it's a bit of a, 
a, a misnomer. We should call it probably, you know, uh, physical distancing while trying to maintain social connectedness. And the idea is to keep yourself as far away from other people as possible and to avoid touching surfaces uh, that other people have touched, doorknobs and elevator buttons um, and things like that. Um, so the most important um, and simplest way to think of social distancing is if you are able to stay home, stay home, stay inside your house. If you go outside, make sure your outdoor activities uh, to maintain um, sort of some balance and, and, uh, and exercise when possible should be, you know, solo or with your immediate family members who you're already exposed to inside your house. Um, uh, I think that uh, sort of at a community and population level, really trying to limit any non-essential trips outside of your home, uh, you know, to the basics, uh, getting basics like uh, essential medications, restocking food supply, et cetera, are, are obviously necessary, but limiting those to the... You know, but that would not include going food. to a restaurant or a bar. That's right. All sort of recreational gatherings, uh, bars and restaurants, movie theaters, um, the like, uh, really should um, be put on hold. But we're seeing, di- we're seeing different guidance on this. We're seeing some places are, are, are shutting down the restaurants. Some are, some are going to take out only. Some are saying it's fine to go to the restaurant so long as you get rid of half of your seats and keep everyone distant from one another. Yes, this is a very um, a very ex- good point, and it's important to say that um, these, these guidelines are rapidly shifting and very dependent on kind of local context and the amount of known community transmission. It also is really dependent uh, on an individual's um, underlying health condition and age. And so a person uh, with underlying medical conditions or someone who's over the age of 60 needs to take much more stringent precautions than, than um, people who don't fit those criteria. So I think, you know, in the United States, we're not used to these um, these regulations that say don't go out to a restaurant, don't um, you're not able to send your children to school any longer. So I think that there's been an effort to kind of, um, in a way, uh, titrate the degree of aggressiveness of these measures to the risk in the communities at the time, uh, as best we know, without um, sufficient testing. Um, and so you're exactly right that in some places, restaurants are allowed to stay open, but they have to decrease their capacity by half. In some places, um, they're really urging people to only order takeout and kind of grab and go at places like Starbucks. So it's, um, I think that's sort of adding to some of the confusion, but the overall message is uh, this will hopefully be a short-term um, situation and the more aggressive we all are at staying home and avoiding un, uh, sort of not essential trips outside the home, the you know, quicker we'll be able to get back to our normal lives. Okay. How long will we be needing to practice social distancing? Again, some governments and some politicians are saying a couple of weeks. Some are saying a month or more. How long do we need to prepare for? That's a really tough question to answer. I think that the general thinking is that uh, at least a couple weeks, potentially much longer than that, and I think that we should all be mentally preparing ourselves for this to be a marathon and not a sprint, and um, to really be cognizant of, of the fact that the more we do now and the more aggressive we are now, uh, the better we can bring this under control and, um, and again, get back to our normal lives. But it's really tough to say at this point how long uh, these measures will need to be in place. Jennifer Bowie.
Yeah, I, I just look at the experience from China. They have、uh, many of the cities has been on total lockdown for over、uh, five weeks, six weeks now. They're really gradually trying to bring the manufacturing、uh, sector back,、uh, just because of the the hit on on the economy,、uh, the demand shock,、uh, as well as the supply the labor、uh, problems has been mounting.、Uh, the, uh, the what we all see that economic. Uh, the economy has been hit really hard,、um, but on the other hand,、uh, it seems that the epidemic has been well contained at this stage. We have school closures going on all over the country, and some of them are being done reactively because there have been infections. Some are being done preventively. Maybe, Laura, you could also weigh in on that and、uh, whether that's being handled properly. Sure.、Um, so. There are some really compelling reasons to close schools. That's obviously why so many districts have made made this decision in、uh, full states,、um, and that's especially true in areas with with suspected or confirmed community transmission.、Uh, that said, the decision is incredibly complex, with significant downsides and significant、um, considerations that、uh, really require cooperation and collaboration across sectors.、Um, In, in areas that are considering or have already started to implement school closure. So, for instance,、uh, many many students in disadvantaged communities rely on their school for meals,、uh, sometimes multiple meals a day. They rely on their school as a safe place to be if if they're currently homeless.、Um, a lot of students with special needs receive services、um, like physical therapy and occupational therapy. And of course, there's the question of when schools close. Who takes care of the children if their parents aren't able to stay home? Will it be a grandparent who's potentially at the highest risk of severe illness? Will a parent have to risk、um, his or her job to、uh, stay home、uh, and care for their children?、Um, so this is a really complex decision that's, that's not taken lightly.、Um, and that said, there are some, some strategies that can help to mitigate the impact on families, especially families that.、Um, Experience is disadvantaged, and I think、uh, some school districts are doing really wonderful jobs of setting up resource centers where students can come for for meals and or you know to be safe and taken care of.、Uh, it really takes a lot of creative thinking and pre-planning so that this decision、uh, doesn't catch families off guard. And、um, but I think that we are really seeing some innovative strategies around the country to、uh, mitigate the impacts on families, as well as to really try to maintain continuity of. Of learning and education to the extent possible in these really extraordinary circumstances. You know, we got one question on Slido from David Porges, which is、uh, related to this, which is about the the length of、uh, contagion. And、uh, what he asks is, if the period of contracting the virus to the end of contagion is, say, three weeks, could a country that isolates itself for three weeks stamp out the virus? Will that do the trick? Yeah, I can very、uh, quickly answer that、uh, in a way that、uh, you know、uh, 
we have to think, you know, what does it mean for isolation? So when we say isolation, we usually say uh, isolate means that you isolate the patients uh, who are in- infected from those who are healthy. And quarantine means you're quarantined the healthy people. Uh, so if we say there's a total lockdown that, uh, you know, we do both isolation and quarantine at the same time for three weeks, we still have to think, you know, are, during that three weeks, would there be family clusters? You know, that's what we see in China. Even though they have a city lockdown, the new cases still coming out, out of the family. Uh, so now they're having uh, complete isolation that's basically put everyone who's uh, even have a very slight case uh, chance of getting the, the disease into a different uh, uh, setting. Uh, so so they're focusing on isolating the potential cases from the, the, the healthy. Um, but even with that, you know, once you are slowly bring back pe- uh, the, the business back, you still have to think, you know, will there still be uh, cases that's with mild symptoms that still can ex- uh, spread the disease? So it's, it will be a long battle. A related question on this, uh, also from Slido, from... Arnie Amason, is it feasible to utilize hotels, motels as quarantine quarters for infected people? And that this could potentially solve two problems at once. Well, China is right now is doing that. So for everyone who's coming from uh, uh, outside China, they ask them to quarantine for 14 days, no matter whether they have contact or whether they have symptom. And they usually have to pay for the hotel themselves. But I, I recently learned that some family, when their kids coming back say, from college, they would rather have the kids staying at home uh, quarantine and they move to a hotel because when they move move to a hotel, they, they are healthy, so they can still go out and getting food, whereas the, the, the kids can uh, stay at home and have, you know, cook by himself or herself. So there are various ways of using hotels and motels for this, um, but it's been widely applied in China. Carrying on with how the disease is spreading, I think one of the things that we are hearing more about is that those who do not show symptoms. Initially, we heard very much that if you don't show symptoms, chances are you are not spreading the disease. But I'm seeing more evidence that the opposite may be true, and that those who do not exhibit symptoms could very well be spreading it. What what have you all heard on this point? And maybe I could start first with Courtney on this point. Sure. Yeah, this is a really big question, and I think one that has incredibly important implications. So I'm hoping we'll get more information and really have an evidence base about this. But just in thinking through this, you know, there are sort of two scenarios in which a person might not have symptoms. The first is that a person might be infected. They might not have symptoms, but they're about to develop infection. And we call those people pre-symptomatic. And I think that we agree that those people, you know, do have the potential to spread the infection just because we know that people whose amount of virus has been measured in their nose and throat on day one of symptoms or day two have quite a high level of virus in their nose and throat. And the fact that it's in their nose and throat also means that it's easier to spread than if it's sort of deep in the lungs. Um, So, you know, the big questions there are that they may have high loads, they don't have symptoms, but we still don't know how actually contagious they are to other people or how well they actually transmit the virus. The sort of conventional wisdom for infectious diseases is that we think people are generally not able to spread 
illness well when they don't have symptoms. Because if you're not coughing, then the virus doesn't really propel out of your lungs or out of your nose and throat. If you're not sneezing, it might come out of your nose, but not at very high levels, and it's not propelling towards other people. Um, and so, you know, that I think is a big question. For those who are infected but never show symptoms, I think we still need a lot more information on what role they might be playing. I think those people are generally not getting tested, and there's not a lot of evidence of what the sort of, you know, how much virus they have um, in their, in their throat. There is some evidence from um, young children and babies, uh, particularly one study of a baby, where um, they had very, you know, remarkably high levels of virus in their nose and throat, but they uh, did not have any symptoms. And that has some implication for children and their, their role in spreading. And um, as you said, you know, the conventional wisdom on this early on, and still the guidance we're getting from CDC is that asymptomatic people are not likely to be driving this pandemic and not likely to spread the disease. But I do think there is increasing concern as we learn more and as more and more people get tested. Um, and it's really important to get right because, as I said, you know, at first, it just has these very, very big implications for trying to contain the virus. And in fact, I would say it probably makes containing the virus exceedingly difficult or, or almost impossible because we can't tell people to quarantine themselves or to get tested based on symptoms. And so anyone out there in the community could at any point have it and be spreading it. So in that case, we'd really need to wholeheartedly sort of shift our thinking, embrace a mitigation approach, and expect widespread infection. All of that being said, there is there are a lot of headlines in the news about asymptomatic people. There has been some non-peer-reviewed article. I would say in speaking to most infectious disease doctors that people are still uncertain, only because it would be quite unlike other diseases that we've ever seen. Then again, this is, you know, it's a new it's a new virus and we should make sure that our, you know, we have fresh mental models and sort of investigate every possibility. Related question uh, from Cantari via Slido is, is it true that for most people who will be sick with COVID-19, the symptoms would show up by the fifth day after exposure? Yeah, so the um, the range is two to 14 days. There is a very slight tail after 14 days. It's thought to not be too significant. It is true that the vast majority do show up by five days. In fact, very few show up 10 days between that 10 and 14-day mark. Uh, but, you know, between five and 10 days, there are people that um, can develop the illness after exposure. Currently, we're, we're still sticking to the 14 days in terms of sort of, you know, the, that's the length of quarantine because that's the time from when you're first exposed to the reasonably the latest that we think you can develop. Uh, another question from Salado. Lisa Feintech asks, isn't it true that regardless of isolation, eventually the virus needs to make its way through a community to confer immunity and, quote, spend out the virus? Um, you know, I think that that is a it's a really interesting question. There have been concerns that the you know UK maybe adapt, uh, adopting this approach, um, and indeed sometimes when a virus can't be contained, it, generally you know we can expect large amounts you know sort of large proportions of the population to get sick. Um, whether that is you know how safe it is to allow that to happen really depends on the burden on the healthcare system. And also, I think it's important to think about immunity and how much of a hold we want to allow sort of a virus to to have. Um, certainly, you know, it's possible that we, uh, you know, may see uh, this infection sort of become more endemic. So rather than outbreaks, it may just become something that is in the community that we sort of that we just live with and that, you know, we expect a large people, a large number of people to be exposed to. And we'll have to see whether that happens really based on um 
how the virus might change, how we might change the strategies we take, and again, the question of how long-lasting immunity is. Um, I think those are going to be all really important factors, and and those are quite uncertain, I would Uh, say, right now. An emailed question from Roger Taylor. Does the virus's distribution suggest it spreads faster in cold climates, and what does that mean for the curve flattening in the summer in the U.S.? I think there are some hypotheses on that, uh, especially given that SARS uh, 17 years ago when uh, it uh, appeared around the same time in, in November and December, uh, and then uh, when the, uh, the uh, World Health Organization identified uh, the, the virus and, and the, uh, the epidemic, it was already in April, and when China implemented uh, uh, quarantine, it was in May. And then uh, shortly after that, in June, um, basically all the cases uh, ended. Uh, so from that uh, example, lots of people think, okay, this is another coronavirus. Uh, would it be very similar to SARS that the case, in addition to the quarantine uh, measures, that uh, the, maybe the weather also helped? Uh, so that's, I think, the hypothesis. But so far, you know, given that we have seen uh, cases uh community transmission in Singapore, in uh, Guangzhou, in many of the warmer uh, weather, uh, I think that that's still a hypothesis that no one has uh, really um, confirmed. Even caller, uh, let me summarize a question from a caller, Edward Muller asking, over the last two months, several people I know who had flu shots got something severe and flu-like. Any chance they had coronavirus? And if so, what would the implications for that be? I'm thinking Courtney for this one. <laughs> well, I, you know, based on the sort of tempo of community spread, uh, depending on how long ago the cases are you're, that you're thinking of, um, it's possible they may have had COVID if they had travel that wasn't disclosed. Um, I'm not aware of any suggestion that flu shots are associated with an increased risk of COVID. I think there has been a question as to whether, um, you know, it's hard to know whether it's sort of an ascertainment bias, meaning people are noticing this more, whether it's real, but there have been a fair number of sort of severe respiratory viruses this season. It has been a very, very difficult flu season, uh, particularly for children uh, here in Massachusetts. I think it's the worst season uh, at last count since 1987 in terms of pediatric deaths and pediatric cases. Um, so it's been a rough winter overall for respiratory illnesses. Um, and, you know, I don't think anyone can say with certainty just because we haven't had the ability to test that those people you're thinking of didn't have um, COVID-19. Certainly moving forward, um, as we're able to do more testing, hopefully we'll get much more clarity on that. And also um, in the, I don't, I'm not sure how near future, but hopefully we'll soon have antibody testing as well. And that will give us a much better handle on whether someone was exposed to COVID or had it and either wasn't sure if it was COVID or, um, you know, didn't think they had it. So we'll be able to do some more population studies. Um, I doubt that that will be rolled out at the individual level, you know, where we can really test everybody to see if we had it. But it is um, going, you know, hopefully will be possible to better understand the population dynamics and even some of the timing. You know, did we underestimate or not understand the timing of when this was introduced into the United States? A related question from Liz. Uh, Have scientists figured out whether a person who has COVID-19 and recovers can get it again? Or does having it give you immunity? Courtney? Um, I I think, you know, as I alluded to earlier, that's one of the other big questions of the day. And I don't think we have a handle on that yet. 
Um, you know, based on SARS, I think we were seeing between sort of one to two years of lasting immunity, but it's also clear that SARS um, behaves in a different way from, from the current virus that causes COVID. Uh, there have been these um, reports in the media of people being reinfected, where they had symptoms, they got better, they tested negative, and then they redeveloped symptoms and tested positive again. These are at the sort of very individual level. It's not clear whether they, you know, tested negative because someone didn't swap their throat deeply enough or for some reason the test didn't go well, um, or whether they truly, you know, and then they had symptoms from something else or symptoms returned for whatever reason and we were just able to better pick it up again, or whether they truly acquired infection that quickly again. And as I was also just saying, you know, we really need antibody or titer testing to understand some of these cases and to understand whether you have immunity to the virus or not. So um, the testing would check your level of antibody. Um, it would help us know not only who was infected, even if they didn't know it. So that would speak to some of this asymptomatic question. Um, but it would also help us understand what level of antibody you need for immunity um, to the virus and allow scientists to explore that a little bit better. Uh, it would be unusual for people to not have any immunity whatsoever to this uh, virus at all. Um, so, you know, although we could operate under that assumption, um, it would be unlike most viruses that we that we observe. Um, but then again, as I said, this virus is, is pretty new and may behave differently. Courtney, you're almost giving the suggestion that there's not enough testing being given. Being being given, uh, where, where do we where do we stand with the amount of testing being done in the country? I mean, I I think the general sense is that we are still don't have enough tests to go around for everyone who is even presenting sick to emergency rooms. Um, certainly there's been an, uh, uh, more availability of testing and my sense is that hospitalized patients can now be relatively easily tested. In addition to testing in the state labs um, and at the CDC, we also have some commercial labs that over the last week have started to um, take tests. I don't know how much um, you know, backlog they may eventually acquire or what volume of testing they're getting. Um, but it does, you know, I, I think we can expect that testing will increase, although I think there's still uncertainty as to whether it can truly meet uh, capacity or not. Um, I think the other, though, big issue with testing is who is going to actually do this. Um, so, you know, I've, I'm hearing of primary care providers, and they don't have enough personal protective equipment to test someone. So if you're testing someone and they're coughing and um, sneezing in your face, you're supposed to wear particular types of personal protective equipment, and they just don't stock that in the primary care office or they don't have the swabs to do the test, so they know where to send it, but they don't have enough swabs and they're having trouble finding it. Um, and so those are, you know, besides actually having test kits available, um, is the ability to actually put those into action. We're seeing some pretty innovative approaches that um, folks are probably hearing about, having um, trying to shift it out of the primary care office, which may not be the best place to do it, uh, into sort of drive-throughs and or tents outside of hospitals. Um, and so, you know, there's there's many aspects to ramping up the testing besides the test kits. It's also having the people to do it in the right place to do it. And uh, what what about you? You mentioned the supply chain. Uh, do we have enough reagents, for example? You know, I I have to say I don't know the particulars of the concerns for the supply chain of reagents. I think we are concerned about supply chain issues in general for personal protective equipment, potentially uh, uh, for the reagents. Um, themselves, even if we get the test kits up and running, I have heard of some state labs not having the reagents that they need, uh, but I'm not sure how how acute an issue that is, how easily that can be resolved in terms of 
ordering more, whether the actual production of those is disrupted. Uh, but my colleagues on the call might have some other thoughts about that as well. Um, I, I would say that um, the three or four weeks of shutdown um, in China certainly caused lots of anxiety uh, globally about the uh, supply chain. Uh, we know that China actually produced about half of uh, global uh, production in chemicals, um, some metals, uh, electronics, and, and textile. Uh, we certainly have seen countries of uh, the manufacturing sector has been slowed down because of the supply chain issue from China. Um, and also in terms of API, the uh, active uh, the pharmaceutical ingredients was a big concern in this country. That They're worried that uh, if China, uh, given that they, they provide about 80% of the API for both generic and uh, the the uh, medicine produ- production in this country uh, will that be an issue? So, from what I heard, uh, is that uh, most of the generic uh, supply from India are using uh, quite a lot of them are using China's uh, API, but they because of the Chinese New Year and just the se- seasonal um, uh, storage, they they usually have three at least three months of uh, stock. But if this get to if the China's uh, uh, manufacturing would not come back until April, I think that will be, be become a, more of a problem. Certainly, China is also a, a big production of the um, the mask uh, and all of that. So hopefully, you know, now I know their production has been very much enhanced and uh, recently because they put priority to those medical supplies. Uh, hopefully, now soon they will they will open up the um, the export. Is it safe to? assume, given the, the, the clear limitations we have on testing abilities here, that we could not do something that I, I believe, Courtney, I've heard you refer to as surveillance screening. In other words, testing folks who who uh, don't have any symptoms, and uh, but to get a sense of how the community may be infected, even if we can't see the symptoms. I'll leave that one to you, Courtney. Yeah, so... Um I think that is fair to say, you know, for surveillance testing, it may or may not be useful to um, look to asymptomatic individuals rather than people who have what's called influenza-like illness since the patterns overlap so much. And I'd been so heartened about three or maybe four weeks ago, the CDC had announced that they were going to do surveillance in five major cities, including New York City, I believe, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, and I believe Atlanta. Um, And, you know, I thought that was really exciting and really, you know, was really proactive thinking because my hope was that we would detect a signal. They were going to um, use the existing flu surveillance network. So we have existing networks of outpatient practices that send flu swabs from uh, a certain proportion of all patients who have compatible symptoms, whether they would have sent it or not clinically. And so um, the hope from that would have been that we would have detected some of the signal um, ahead of actually seeing people present very sick because there's a delay from when you get it to when you actually get sick enough to maybe need to be in the hospital. And unfortunately, that, uh, to my knowledge, has not come to fruition. And the reason was because CDC's test kits were not working as expected and there was an inadequate supply of test kits. Um, But certainly once we get enough, I think that will be incredibly important to do to really understand how communities are doing, what to expect, be able to really signal to a community, hey, you look like you're about to you know, really your trajectory indicates or the number of cases we're detecting indicates that you're about to see a surge and to allow people to prepare a little bit better. But um, surveillance is really a cornerstone of public health, and we, we can't know what's happening without um, taking some action. Jennifer has an interesting thing on her screen about Google doing coronavirus screening. 
Yeah, we just alerted earlier today by some friends that the the Google is doing some base. Uh, they they call it Project Baseline.、Um, right now, I think there's only two sites in California. One is Santa、uh, Santa Clara. There's another site,、um, but it's in launched by. Um, by Google, so、uh, the idea is that anyone who get to know this, so no matter whether you have、uh, symptoms or not, you could register,、uh, fill out a survey, and get testing. But、uh, as we said, it's brand new today, started,、um, and only to have two sites. So it'd be nice to get Jennifer Cavanaugh in here. There, there is so much、uh, information, misinformation, disinformation. Out there, and Jennifer has、uh, written the book on this topic,、uh, literally、uh, called "Truth Decay," which is about the diminishing role that facts and analysis play in making important public policy decisions.、Uh, Jennifer, what, from everything you've seen, to what extent is truth decay at work here with the coronavirus outbreak? I would say that, based on our research, this is really、uh, a perfect example of what we wrote about and what I was afraid、um, would happen、uh, in terms of the level of disinformation and its consequences.、Um, this is the type of environment in which false and misleading information really thrives and spreads quickly. People are vulnerable. People are afraid. People don't know what to believe.、Um, trust in basically every institution that we would turn to is pretty low. There's higher trust in doctors than, say, media or government. But even that, people tend to trust their own doctor, but not the medical community writ large. So the combination of low trust and a high volume of information coming from people who are not experts but purport to be experts. Um, creates kind of the perfect storm for the average person.、Um, I will admit that I myself, being a well-informed person who knows where to go for good information, struggles to figure out what's true and what's not. So you can imagine how how hard it would be for the average person who hasn't spent the past three years studying misinformation and the way it preys on on individuals. Just, just one quick example there.、Uh, I mean, just today, my social media has been blowing up with people sending around this message that. Folks have supposedly heard that the president is about to invoke the Stafford Act, and that this is going to lead to a two-week national quarantine.、Uh, now, I've also seen that rapidly re- debunked. But is this is this an example of what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly.、Um, you know, I think、uh, that's just the type of thing that we see circulating. My Was in New York City. She texted me in a panic that New York City was going to be in a two-week quarantine, and they were shutting down、uh, the, mess- the subway system.、Um, and I was able to find、um, online pretty quickly that that was false, and show her that there were other places she could get information that would provide her a better fact-based source of, of what she's looking for.、Um, but it's just it's really confusing and it's frightening.、Um, and we have disinformation and false information coming from so many sources. There are people who are trying to do their jobs by providing what they think is right and just messing up.、Um, we have foreign actors who are actively spreading false information about the source of the virus. For example, saying that it is a bioweapon developed by the U.S. military.、Uh, we have、um, an internal partisan conflict over、uh, over which sources are accurate and disagreements about the level of severity and how concerned we should be. Um, and then you have the media. And while there are many actors in the media who are working really hard to get the facts out there,、um, just the fundamental media environment and the fact that media is at its heart a business that's trying to make money means that they're going to keep、um, uh, 
fueling that fire and that fear um, with the 24-hour day coverage, the constant panic headlines, um, that's not good for anyone. Um, and the online sources are no better. Social media, Twitter, Facebook, these places just um, fill people with fear, um, false information and confusion. So, you know, this is exactly the like worst case scenario that I imagined when I was writing the book. Um, we did some historical comparisons, um, Michael and I did, and we, um, people always ask, well, what ended truth decay in previous periods? And the answer that I never really wanted to give was some kind of um, serious um, incident, whether it's a catastrophe, the Great Depression, a war, um, a, a moment when people realize the consequences of making policies that aren't based on fact and making decisions based on what we want to be true or what we hope will be true and ignoring the actual evidence. Um, and so what we're seeing play out is sort of exactly that. Now, whether this is enough to cause that snapback, um, you know, I don't know. Um, it's an open question. Um, I guess I would certainly hope so, um, but um, it's just something that we have to watch for now. It sounds like it might be fair to say that uh, the efforts to to fight this truth decay would be an essential part of a strategy to to prevent something like this from happening again? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, looking forward, thinking about what a, a, a couple months shutdown would mean, I mean, trust is low now. And so having um, a period of economic and social dislocation is going to hurt trust um, in the near term, but there's an opportunity to build trust in the long run if it's handled properly. Um, you know, if you think about the beginning of the Great Depression, um, one of the reasons that the Great Depression was so long and so severe is that uh, in the early period, policymakers ignored the data they had and made decisions based on other things. Um, and that just made it worse and undermined trust even more. So learning from that example, the next couple of weeks are really critical in terms of the decisions that our policymakers make to try to rebuild that confidence right from the start and show that they do have the situation under control, that they are using data to send a consistent message from all the different players who are providing us information, which isn't what's happening right now. Um, I think those types of things could go a long way. But at the bottom line, I think individuals have to realize that you know facts and data matter, that there are experts that, that have information, that they're the ones who um, who should be looked to as sources of of information about health? It should be the people who have the information, not um, not someone else. Um, and so it ha there has to be both um, the change at the at the policy level, but also the change at the community level to understanding that um, evidence and facts should drive all of our decisions every day. Um, and if we don't make our decisions based on fact and evidence, we can end up with serious un and unwanted consequences. Spe speaking of facts and evidence, I'd be curious to hear from each of you what your own research agendas are looking like at this point. In other words, either with, with regard to coronavirus. In other words, either what you're working on now or what you'd like to be working on very soon. Uh, maybe start with Jennifer Bowie. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I, I really agree with Jennifer that uh, the Chuster K is, uh, Ren has been a leader on, on that type of uh, research. Uh, Ren also has been on the forefront of uh, public health emergency uh, preparedness uh, in Ebola, H1N1. So now we have an opportunity to make a meaningful difference uh, in the discussion around the coronavirus and also set a stage for how d uh, decisions are made uh, and how health infrastructure can be prepared 
prepared uh, for the future. Um, so my own research, I'm interested in uh, to look at the global health security issues. So I'm really uh, very excited to work with a, f- a few people, a uh, f- few experts at uh, RAND and looking using the uh, disease transmission models as well as the economic models to see how different uh, public health interventions can affect the disease transmission as well as uh, economic uh, inf- uh, impact. Uh, so uh, we're also interested in how to look at uh, risk uh, communication uh, during these uh, epidemics. Good, good. Uh, Laura, what's what's on your agenda? Well, a couple of things. I think there are you know an infinite number of areas of, of interest um, to research here. A couple of things that come to mind for me are, you know, one related to public health infrastructure and capacity in the United States. Really interested in how local public health departments, you know, state, local, tribal, and territorial, keep their so-called pilot lights on in between public health emergencies. And for example, what did they learn and put in place during Ebola or recent measles outbreaks? that are serving them well uh, during this crisis. And conversely, what did they lose or have to give up when their budgets were cut and they lost staff and they had to shift resources, very limited resources elsewhere? So I'm really interested to um, think about how to help public health departments avoid starting from square one with each of these, you know, inevitable uh, public health emergencies. A second area that I think is just really important to consider is the long-term behavioral health consequences and emotional well-being impacts on the population at large that's experiencing something that really is unprecedented and uh, is going to have long-term impacts. You know, I think that um, we're really not sure, although we can imagine what the effects will be of, of being told to stay at home for sort of an indefinite period right now and um, sort of sever all social contacts out in the world if you don't have to. I think that is really um, concerning and important to study uh, as we think about supporting people who do or do not have pre-existing behavioral health conditions uh, so that our uh, community and populations are as resilient as possible and come out of this stronger than than going into this crisis. Excellent. Looking forward to uh, seeing what you come up with there, Laura. Uh, How about Courtney? Yeah, so um, there are just so many efforts going on. It's actually really exciting to see. And I think what I'm enjoying most is just seeing how we're taking advantage of our multidisciplinary um, expertise so I've been working since I started at RAND over 10 years ago with a group of uh, researchers that involve a cognitive psychologist, a mathematician, and we actually surveyed people every month during the H1N1 pandemic and learned a tremendous amount about how people perceive risk, their willingness to accept the vaccine, which I think will be really important, hopefully, you know, in the future for this pandemic as well. And we're taking that knowledge and our experience working together over the next decade to bring it to bear here. So we're planning surveys of the public using RAND's American Life Panel, um, actively seeking out funding to do this work. Um, so that's really exciting to see. Um, and also thinking through the effect on the healthcare system, we have a lot of data here at RAND, the capacity to do these really big data analytics, and I think the potential to really do some exciting work to see what some of these measures, how they'll result in an impact on our overall health and then health specific to COVID. Uh, thank you. And how about uh, Jennifer Cavanaugh? So uh, I, w- I was talking to my uh, my dad over the weekend about how, um, as a political scientist, I find what's going on fascinating as a human being, not so much. 
Um, so there's a ton of questions that I would really be interested in looking at. The ones most uh, relevant to, uh, to Truth Decay include things like, I'm really interested in tracking public opinion. Um, we have like the perfect opportunity here to track how events like this change people's attitudes um, about the government, about the media, about their community, um, how it affects their attitudes towards each other, how it affects their attitudes towards things like vaccines, like does it drive people away from them? Does it convince them that they, um, that they do matter? I'm interested in the effect on partisanship. Um, does this event uh, bring people together as we've seen in past national crises or um, because the effects will be differential, like the, the health effects may not have a demographic bent, but the economic impact will be differential. So some people um, may be better able to weather those than others. Um, perhaps uh, just worsening some of the economic and social polarization that we already have in this country, so I'm interested in watching that. Um, and then just more generally, some of my other research, I'm interested in the effect on this at the global level in terms of things like trade, um, conflict, and then borders. Um, we see a lot of border uh, restrictions and restrictions on travel and closing of borders, um, and that was already uh, discussed in some of the efforts uh, or concern around immigration and refugees. And so my, um, my question is, how, does, how do those two things interact? When this is over, do those restrictions go away? Or do uh, self-interested actors um, uh, use this as a reason to keep those restrictions and those border controls in place? Um, so those are some of the things I'm watching. Great. Thanks, Jennifer. Uh, just time for one or two more questions before uh, we hand over to Brandon. Uh, uh, one from Hussein Khalifa is, what are the main differences in the underlying assumptions used in the models that suggest contradictory approaches to handling the crisis, such as the UK approach versus the US approach? Who would like that? The main differences in the underlying assumptions that are driving these different approaches, maybe Jennifer Bowie. Right. Um, so I think certainly different country was uh, one of the thing we talk about when we assess inter uh, interventions is a pol political uh, feasibility viability. Um, and also we have to think of the cultural and the social uh, environment. So those are all part of the the reason that uh, a different pol policy can come out. Uh, however, I, I still feel that any policy should be based on evidence and science. Uh, I think the in terms of whether we want to have the immunity uh, passive or active, we, we usually say passive immunity means that you just let people, you know, getting the disease and then, um, you know, uh, have uh, produced a herd immunity, whereas active immunity means that we have a vaccine and we can vaccinate people and protect people, large population like that. So I think, you know, there's usually a policy that we want to make sure that we, we understand that the disease transmission uh, and the capacity uh, of our healthcare system, uh, and based on that, we and also the uh, the population's willingness to uh, uh, willingness to uh, getting the testing and getting the uh, taking the social distance. Uh, so, given the social cult cultural environment, I think those those factors should all be factored into these policies. Very good. Thanks. Uh, we're just two minutes from the top of the hour, uh, and just about the end of our time. So I'd like to ask Brandon if he might say a few words in closing. Over to you, Brandon. Yeah, thank you so much, Jeff. And thank you again to our RAND experts for all your work that you're doing right now. 
Um, and to all those on the phone, I'm so grateful that you've joined us today for this important call. You know, during these challenging times, I'm personally thankful for the access to our RAND experts and expertise because I know that their analysis is based on facts. And that's what we need right now. We want to know what does the evidence say? What does this mean for me, for my family, for my community? And who can we trust? Trust and expertise are critical, which is why even in these difficult times like now, RAND is so important. We have an even greater need to support our RAND researchers and our party RAND graduate students and to help our nation and world get through these tough times. RAND is committed to helping solve the most complex problems, such as the public health emergency that we find ourselves in today. We've recently launched a major fundraising campaign to help increase RAND's agility and our ability to do the important work featured on the call today. When there's an urgent need for the facts, for evidence-based action plans, and when time is of the essence to act. So I hope you'll join us and support us through your philanthropy during this time. You can learn more about our campaign by visiting campaign.rand.org. We appreciate your ongoing engagement and support, and we thank you for participating in today's call. Stay tuned, because as Jeff mentioned, we do plan to have more of these calls to keep you updated and informed. But in the meantime, please keep up to date with our research at rand.org. Thanks again, Jeff. Thank you. This concludes our call. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.